Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the Big Wednesday Buckeye Talk. We're doing rapid fire. I got the clock. I'm keeping us to it. We're going to try. I have like 23 questions possibly because we got some two-parters in there. Doug Marie, Stephen Means, Nathan Baird. We're heading towards football season. We want to get into a little more nonsense. We haven't done as much nonsense lately. So I don't know. Let's just dive right in. We appreciate all the texters who participated. 614-350-3315. Send a text there. If you want to be able to send us questions like this one from the 419. In the first seven Ohio State games, not including Michigan, what do you think the point spread will be on average? I may be drinking the Buckeye Kool-Aid, but I believe the average victory will be 52 to 10. And the defense will give up less than 70 points in the first seven games. Nathan, you're a betting expert. Is that correct? You're a betting expert? You have been to Vegas at least once. Is that correct? If I were a betting expert, would I be talking to you here this afternoon? I'd be in Vegas swimming in money like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, I know. It's like everybody's – every time a sports writer makes a pick wrong, everybody's like, you made a pick wrong. And it's like, we're stupid and dumb or we wouldn't be sports writers. <laughs> what, what, what possible kind of lines – would you imagine? Actually, we try to look stuff up. I don't know. We're bad at. We're not betters. We're bad at looking up betting lines. What are you thinking? Like, what if you had to guess? What do you think the line will be on Nebraska, and, and how indicative of that will be? Will it be for the whole season? Uh, that's a great question about the lines because I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of lines. They just said margin of victory, so that's kind of what I picked. I mean, I think the Nebraska line will probably be somewhere in the the high teens, maybe at least. It's hard. I mean, it's like, what would you, how high would a line have to be until you took Nebraska? I'd take Ohio State minus 35. I don't think the line's mm-hmm. going to be minus 35. I'd take <sighs> Ohio State minus 35. Would you take Ohio State minus 42? Or would you be like, no, I'm putting my cold, hard cash. I want Nebraska plus 42. I wouldn't do that. I would take something lower than 30. I could take something lower than 35 to take Nebraska. I could take Nebraska like plus something in the 20s. I think. Welcome oh. to Doug Sportsbook. Whoa. We are wide open and ready for business. Nathan Baird, I will give you Nebraska plus 29. How much do you want to put on it? I mean, that's we'll a- come back to that. I'll th- we'll think about that. I mean, you guys t- okay, but that means that like 
51 to 22 with a late score by Nebraska is 29. No, I, right. Which exactly. is why, yeah, I'd go 30. That's probably my limit as well. Um, just because it's first week. And skewy things. We, I mean, we've seen it with some other teams. Skewy things can happen in the first week where you give up some random big plays. So I, I think 30 might be my limit. First week for Nebraska, too. I know. I, they're going to blow people out. I think the, the heart of the question here, can I, can I advise this in the COVID era? Don't bet. Don't bet for a while. <laughs> I would, I, I don't, I've got friends who are, who are gamblers, guys like – I got this poker game every weekend, and they, they're always talking about what they're betting on the NFL game that Sunday, or they, they talk about betting MLB games and stuff like that. And I'm like, hey, what are you guys, uh, what are you guys doing with college this year? And they're like, we are not touching college football this year. It's, there's no possible way. What are you, crazy? And that's yeah, I, I would definitely for this year. I mean, any other year, do what you guys want, but this year, I man, it seems really perilous. And every game you bet, you're gonna bet it early in the week, and then like Friday morning, it comes out that these umpteen guys aren't playing because of COVID, or or that you know there's a game day positive. I, I just I can't imagine going down this line. I think so. Don't bet, don't bet. But if you do want to bet, come to Doug's Doug's house of give me money. I'm, ter- I'm terrible at it. Oh, just, I'm just awful. But I will say, I do think that they're going to be like four touchdown favorites against everybody except Penn State in the first seven games. I mean, I just don't know who's going to hang with them. And again, it goes back to what we thought before. Yes, it's crazy, but I think the favorites will be more of a favorite. And I would be very comfortable giving up four touchdowns in, every, in, in six Ohio State games for sure. Maybe yeah. not Penn State, maybe not Michigan, depending how things look at the end of the year. Other than that, you can take, take 20 point, 28 points right now, no problem. Against Penn State, I might go three touchdowns anyway, and just with everybody else, it's 28 or more. I tried to look. I mean, Ohio State is, is, is often is like a good team to bet on, I think. Now, the hard thing with like the actual betting stuff is that sometimes Ohio State, you know, there's such a – there's such like a, a famous team that the line gets thrown off that it, there's so many Ohio state fans and everybody wants to bet on them. Um, but this is from, this is like from early lines, like in March before anything got screwed up, but and, and like, they're not playing some of these teams now, but back then they were a 12 and a half point favorite for the Nebraska game. When that Nebraska game was on the schedule. Um, they were only a one-and-a-half-point favorite at Penn State. That's crazy. I mean, they'd be, they're going to be a much bigger fa- favorite of, of Penn State now. They were an eight-and-a-half-point favorite on Michigan in March. Again, I just think a lot of these things are going to expand. And I just think, again, Ohio State's going to fall into the category with Alabama and Clemson where they're going to handle all of this much more than anybody else. Keep your money. Keep your money. This is a better question that we – not a better question. It's going to be a better answer from us. From the 614. Explain how an entire conference comes to develop an identity. This is from Greg C74. For instance, he says the Big 12 equals no defense. The Big 10 equals tight ends and average quarterback play. The SEC equals defensive line dominant. Why do all 12 or more schools follow line together with a similar approach? So you can quibble with that idea. Are all teams in a conference kind of the same? But I think we all would agree. I think Greg's general assessment there is is pretty right so nathan what do you think there is i have some theories on it what do you think might be responsible for styles of play in different conferences 
I think some of it, and this is especially true when you compare, let's say, the Big Ten as a whole to the SEC as a whole, I think the regional recruiting base is a factor here. You've got a, a region that gets to recruit from the backyard. It, from its backyard is recruiting the best pure athletes in the country. Um, I guess you could extend that even to the Pac-12 to some extent with the guys that they are able to get out of California um, and, and somewhat to the ACC. But I think that definitely plays into the kind of football that the Big Ten plays because I don't know that they necessarily have that kind of athlete. I, I know they don't. You can just look at the, the yearly results of the, the recruiting rankings that go back decades. Like they, they don't have those athletes in their backyard. They go and get them. That's why Ohio, and Ohio State has been adept at going and getting them. That's why they have separated themselves a little bit in the Big Ten. But I think that regional recruiting base is part of it. So then you adapt your style of play a little bit to the kind of athlete that you have. What do you think, Steven? I think, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Often these conferences, they mirror the style of play at some of these high schools in this region as well. In Texas, there's a lot of great wide receivers that come out of there. Jackson Smith and Jigma, Garrett Wilson, just to name a few on Ohio State's roster. They come from offenses that throw the ball around a lot, and yep, hence why there's so many great wide receivers out of there. A lot of good quarterbacks come out of the California area, which is – kind of where the air raids started out there on the, on the West coast. That's why you see quarterbacks playing that well. Florida speed is a thing. That's why a lot of sec teams have a lot of different speed. And in the big 10, there aren't going to be a lot of quarterbacks because they don't have spring football. So you don't develop quarterbacks at the same rate. There's some, you don't develop those type of positions at the same rate because there's no spring football while out West down South. And then, you know, Texas and stuff, they have spring football that plays a role in it as well. So you see positions like offensive line, tight end positions that maybe aren't, featured in other different other conferences are featured more in the Midwest because that can would be can be developed because it's a lot more of a run game. I think the spring football point's really important. I think some of the reason the Big 12 they play bad defense because their offenses are so wide open and they chuck mm-hmm. it around. And I think some of that comes from spring football and coaches at the high school level scheming it up and sort of expanding offenses that they have more time to do that kind of thing. And then I think it became such a priority in the Big 12. They put all their talent on offense because they started chucking it around. And then it was like, well, if you got anybody who's got any skill, we'll put them on offense. The heck with defense. And it's just a different, you know, it's you don't get to play as much in high school. I think, I think, I think the spring football thing beyond the sort of talent bases, right? I think the spring football thing is, is a really important part of that. And, and that everything is kind of bottom up. High school influences college. College influences the NFL. Sometimes it can be slow. Sometimes the level above can be reluctant to adapt. But after a while, I mean, it, you have if everybody at the level below is being trained to do a certain thing, you can either get with the program and kind of do that, or every player you bring in, you have to teach them to play a different way. And eventually, I think the, the level above does adapt. I think spring football is huge. This is like an actual question, kind of like with an answer. And Nathan, you and I were talking about it the other day. We don't, we don't know the answer, but there's not a lot of discussion here. From the 6-3-0, what are your thoughts on the start time for the Penn State game? Will it be more likely be a night game on Halloween, or do they make it a noon kickoff? So as we understand, so the Fox and ESPN, they have this, they split the Big Ten stuff. Fox always has the first pick of games. Fox always takes Ohio State, Michigan. That's how we, every year, it's like immediately announced, hey, Fox has Ohio State, Michigan, because that's the number one game and Fox has the number one pick. So then ESPN slash ABC gets the next pick and you usually assume they take Ohio State, Penn State, because that's usually the second best game in the league. So if it's an ESPN game, 
I think we've seen Fox lean into the noon kickoffs, right? Doesn't mean they never do night games, but when Fox has a big game that involves Ohio State, I think you might be more likely to say, hey, that might be at noon. ESPN, ABC, they still like the night, nighttime games. And I will tell you, I am not watching a lot of college football right now. I had it on Saturday night, and some of the stuff that ESPN and ABC were putting on, they are dying to get the Big Ten in prime time. I don't know who, who they play. They're playing like Iowa State and Missouri. Like there is some garbage in prime time on major networks right now. Nathan, I have to imagine that's going to be a night game at Penn State. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like what other Big Ten game would be worthy of putting on if you if you had that second pick. Like what else would you? I mean, both these teams are in top ten right now. So if the selections haven't been made, like if the selections were being made today, there's one matchup this year on the schedule right now that involves two top ten national teams in the Big Ten, and it's Ohio State versus Penn State. I think they have to take that, and I think it probably will be a night game. I will. I did book my Hampton in for that night even though I may not be able to get my waffles the next morning, thanks to COVID. So you booked it, assuming it's a night game that you'll sleep in state college the night, at, like Saturday yeah. night. Probably stay with friends uh, on the way out there, stay in state college that night. Yeah. All right. So, and tell us when we're wrong. It's not, it's not market down Wednesday. Well, we don't know, but that seems to be logical from the let's, two let's ones. Guess it up Wednesday. Yes. That's what every other podcast is. Monday is actually trying to be right. The rest of the time is pull it out your butt day of the week from the two one six. Obviously this is a Buckeye podcast. It is. It's called Buckeye talk, but you can have, but can you have yin without yang? Okay. So does Joe Milton make Michigan more or less dangerous than a team led by Dylan McCaffrey for Ohio state in our eyes is, is Michigan more Ohio state more is Michigan more dangerous for Ohio state with Joe Milton Dylan McCaffrey is gone. Joe Milton is kind of a big arm guy who they're trying to make more accurate, especially with our perceived lack of depth in the secondary. Does a guy who can supposedly air it out, give you more pause than before Michigan more danger with dangerous with Joe Milton or not. Steven, what do you think? Yes. If, if Michigan has a guy who can throw it around, yes, that is going to provide problems for your secondary. I mean, I'm not saying he's as good as Deshaun Watson, but Think about Deshaun Watson having that ability to throw it around and how that hurt Ohio State in that game and not being able to slow that down. Think Alabama and Cardell Jones. Having a guy who could – the vertical passing game creates a whole different threat for your offense than if you don't have it. So, yeah, if he's throwing it around the way some of the reports have said he's throwing it around, the way Michigan's talking about it, then, yeah, that creates an extra problem, especially for a team who only has one guy in the secondary who's validated right now. I think it's a bit early to compare Joe Milton and Deshaun Watson and, and Cardell Jones also had Ezekiel Elliott in his backfield, which, which helped as far as the balance that you, you were using off of that. So I will say, yes, in theory, it makes Michigan more dangerous. But I think what Doug said is the big caveat here, like, okay, he's got a big arm. He can chuck it a little bit. How accurate is he? How refined is he? How precise is he? Cause I think that's how you would maybe beat Ohio state. Uh, just having a guy who can really air it out, but doesn't know where it's going to go. I don't know if that really does you any good against Ohio State. I think you just got to be better than that. You know, Ohio State's offense is not going to give you any um, opening to to just kind of play around on defense and only kind of have it work a little bit of the time. I think you've got to – I'm not saying he has to dink and dunk. I'm saying it's got to be more than just arm power, though. I think there's got to be – it's got to be that he is um, – that there is some efficiency to it as well. So I guess my question is, I think we would regard Milton as a boomer bust quarterback more, right? That like he might be great or he might just 
be terribly inaccurate, which is a lot of times Cardale was more like that. Now Cardale boomed in the playoff. He boomed. He never busted. He busted a little more in 2015. Michigan does not have as much talent as Ohio state, but they also, it's hard. I guess my, I, if I were Michigan, I would say the heck with it. Give me the boomer bus guy. Because trying to have like a competent quarterback to run the offense and hang with Ohio State, that, uh, that hasn't gotten anywhere. However, they actually even really haven't had that. Like, in, I mean, they've had – the year they had John O'Corn doing stuff, John O'Corn was awful. He was bust or bust. And then you thought Shea Patterson, he was a five-star guy, but he wasn't like a, an NFL guy. You thought he was more of a JT Barrett, Trace McSorley guy, but then he was never really that good. So – so if you're Michigan, and this is the argument that people made in 2014, and I pushed back against it some then, I don't, I don't know. If you're Michigan, it's almost like, would you rather have JT Barrett or would you rather have Cardale Jones? Just like with Ohio State against Alabama in 2014, would you rather have JT Barrett or would you rather have Cardale Jones? I'm not sure Michigan has even had JT Barrett is the problem. I would, because my, my, my inclination is, well, JT Barrett hasn't worked. You may as well try Cardale Jones, except I don't think they've had JT Barrett. I think they've had Joe Bozerman. Like they even have, they haven't just had a really competent winning guy who has an okay arm. But at this point, try this. I'd try this. And if that doesn't work, then go get a competent guy. But I don't know. That's that to me is the question, Nathan boomer bust versus competence. And I'm not sure Michigan's had either in the Harbaugh era. So well, the fact that they're point, making this, the fact they're making the switch, does it make you think it's more likely that he that Milton is more than just a big arm, and that there is something more there, or because of Michigan's recent history, does it make you think they probably are just making the wrong decision again? Well, it's I not mean, a choice. Yeah, McCaffrey left. Now it's not. Yeah, yeah now it's not. But it was I mean, before. That may have been one of the reasons why he left. Yeah, I think I think Joe Milton's ceiling is probably higher and if it's if right now it's just a big arm and accuracy you can you know develop that and you can coach that but if a guy's floor and ceiling are already pretty low it's kind of hard to you know outplay that but also where so Doug where do you put Shea Patterson on that scale of if they haven't had a JT Barrett yet like I mean a poor man's JT Barrett like a poor man's Trace McSorley like if if you know if JT was a for that style of quarterback if JT was like a a nine out of 10 for that style of quarterback. And Trace McSorley was like an eight out of 10 for that style of quarterback. I feel like Shea Patterson was like a five out of 10. I respect that. So I don't know. I'd like to see with JT Barrett. Can they just, just get somebody competent and try to get some skill around them, get a good offensive line and see what happens. But I get, if I were them, I would do the Joe Milton thing. And if Joe, and that's the thing too. There's the idea of will Joe Milton be good the whole year, or might he just be good? He might be good for two games, and maybe one of the games is Ohio State, and he might not even be good for every play. But if he completes a 65-yard bomb right on somebody's hands when Sean Wade has great coverage, or you know what I mean, like that'd be something. I'd try something different. Maybe Joe Milton is something different because whatever Michigan's done so far hasn't worked. Question five in the two one six. Actually, it's Joseph from Atlanta who has a 216 number. Two short but related fast food questions. What's the furthest out of your way it's reasonable to go for a specific fast food restaurant? Five minutes, 10 minutes, all the way across town. And what fast food chain is most worth driving that furthest distance for? So, Stephen, we'll start with you. What, what, is, the, what is the farthest 
And I think that there is a, actually, there's a logistical answer to this for me as well. But how far will you go for specific fast food? 40 minutes tops. 40 minutes, that's far. Okay, go and ahead. One way? Yeah. One way, 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I've done that's, it, actually. I went 40 minutes before. For what? What'd you get? Fuddruckers. I, I just, I had to. It's, is that fast I, food? Is Fuddruckers fast food? Fast enough. Yeah, I remember it being. I guess it's kind of maybe a fast casual burger place. It's been a long time since I've been it's, to one. It's. I mean, it, yeah, it's not McDonald's, obviously, but it, it, I think it's fat, fast casual food. Uh, yeah, forty minutes to get Fuddruckers, I would do that. What it would have to be under those. I just got a burger, but it's just the fact of it has to be something of that where you just haven't had it in so long that you just have to get it because it's close, relatively. Yeah, it can't I, be. You can't go out of your way to get canes just because there's no canes in your state it has to be something that was a part of your life at one point and it was snatched away like Fuddruckers was well i mean for some people that might be canes i mean if you live somewhere where there's canes and then you move somewhere where there's no canes then maybe you would drive for canes i mean that's not that's not yeah, place yeah. Fuddruckers on it we're not here to place Fuddruckers <laughs> on a pedestal oh well i mean canes is no Fuddruckers what'd you get on your burger uh, just some lettuce, uh, ketchup. Just it's a no. I just got a basic burger, but it's just a Fuddruckers the burger. The Fuddruckers meat is yeah. solid. That's your so. So I respect that. I think that's different, right? I think if if it is something that used to be close to you and no longer is, I think that contributes to it. Nathan, how far would you go? I, I said, especially now in an era where everything is is carry out, where you're not eating in the restaurant. I said like ten minutes max, because I'm bringing home. Because by the time I get my food home, it's cold. That is the logistics. That is the killer. And, and the, the fries are soggy and the food is cold. Especially if you're getting food for other people. Now, if it's yeah. just you to go yeah, eat, you can fair. eat in the parking lot. Or, the, but, or on the drive. If you're, or on the drive, you can have a fry. Take your life in your own hands. But if you're bringing – one of the great problems I feel like that this nation needs to solve that has been accentuated by the COVID pandemic is soggy fries. Because you get the fries in the container, and then the fries are hot, and they steam themselves in the container, and they sogify. Mm -hmm. That is a real-world American problem. I'm not saying it's the most important thing in a pandemic, but probably top 10. Sogify. So I have done it. We like Culver's. You guys like Culver's? <laughs> oh, I know you like Culver's. Steve and I most, I most got in a car accident with Steve. No, so the, the real question is, are you willing to risk your life for this food? Hey, look over there, Steve, and there's a Culver's. Let me make a turn here. Oh, there's a car coming 50 miles an hour behind us that I didn't see. Sorry, mister, I wanted a burger. It was good food, though. I like Culver's. It's 24 minutes from our house, probably. So I'll go get it, but it's hard to bring it back for my kids for that exact reason. Nathan. And I'm not going to make my kids go all the way over, but there also is a sense of accomplishment. So I think it depends. Are you going to eat it in the parking lot or bring it home? Are you getting it just for yourself or are you getting it for other people? But I get it. And sometimes you just want to listen to a podcast. Are we at that point? I drive so much less right now because I don't go anywhere. Sometimes it's like, oh, 40 minute drive to get a hamburger. It's like, I want to drive for 40 minutes. I want to be in my car and do my car things that I don't do anymore because my whole life is on Zoom. So I would go, I think, 30 or 40 minutes right now. But, Nathan, even in a pandemic, you'd stick to 10. 
Yeah, I said maybe 15 if it was like eat in. But it, we're talking about real fast food. I don't, I mean, look at me. I've eaten plenty of fast food in my day. But I don't know that I differentiate fast food that much. Like if the place I really wanted to go, like if I was going to get a burger, am I really going to drive more than 15 minutes? Because 15 minutes in any direction for me are X number of McDonald's, X number of Burger Kings, X number of Arby's, X number of Wendy's. Like I'd be driving past a bunch of perfectly reasonable fast food places to get to this other one. So it would have to be, I, I was trying to think of like what would be special enough that I'd drive farther than 15 minutes considering the logistical problems. And I, I couldn't come up with one. Yeah. So I, that, the second part was, which one would you drive for? I would drive for Culver's because I have Steven, I, you would go for Fuddruckers. Yeah. I tried to do it in Arizona because the van, when we were out there could take you some places. But as I got in the van, we realized that, Oh, that Fuddruckers is no longer open. Oh, well, my answer for that was, and I don't, this may fall into the same category as Fuddruckers. It may be more fast casual than fast food, but I said Boston market. Cause that's like the one place where you could like go and go through a drive through and get real food. And it's still kind of fast food, real food. So that was my closest that I would drive that far for. I do like a good Boston market sometimes. Sometimes it's exactly what you're looking for, man. That's good. It's good when you're in college and that's your Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. I, I respect anywhere you can get turkey. Yeah. Because I'm not yeah, going to turkey, just... rotisserie, chicken, yeah. all sorts of stuff. All right. This is another fast food question. We're going to get it. We're doing like, you know, about. 25% nonsense, but this first person in the 440 asked a nonsense and a football. We're going to do both. Nonsense first. I missed the questionable food hot takes from everybody. So what is everyone's favorite go-to fast food meal? I think we have overtime here. Let people in on sort of our fast food tendencies. But again, this is like a, this is a market down Wednesday. Market down and we're not, we're not doing the, well, I get fries from here and I get chicken from here and I get a shake from here. When you just go to get your main fast food thing, Nathan, what is your main fast food thing when you go get it? It's, it's either the, the double or the spicy chicken from Wendy's. And, and do, you get, uh, do you get fries? Yes. Oh, yeah, the meal. Yeah, I like the meal. The meal. Combo meal. Do you yeah. large size it or do you like get it medium? Size? Not usually, especially if I'm eating there. I feel like that's a waste of money. I like Wendy's because they also have the drink machine right now. They have the 100 drink machine, which like McDonald's mm -hmm. doesn't usually have. Steven, what's your go-to meal? I mean, it used to be Chick-fil-A, but now I'm trying to get on this health tip for the last month or so. Uh, so now it's Subway. I get variations of different subs. I got a meatball sub a couple of days ago. So yeah, it's now it's Subway because I'm trying to be more healthy. If I'm going to be stuck in the house, I might as well you know, be healthy about it. Let me Let's ask see. this question. Let me ask this question. Is Subway a scam? Yeah. Yes, it is. It's the whole $5 foot long thing is just stop, pr stop promoting that. The, the sub is $9. Plus you got to get a cookie. Plus you got to get some chips and you got to get a drink. So, so but yeah. my, my part I, of the scam is that you stopped going to Chick-fil-A and now you're going to Subway because it's healthier. And you just said that your meal includes a cookie and chips and it's a foot long piece of bread with some processed meat in it, I'm assuming, right? The, the idea that Subway... And the guy who did it, to be fair, is in jail. Yeah. Has well, he, but to America. be fair, he did also lose weight. He did. Those two things are true. <laughs> those <laughs> those things are, that doesn't, the, the former does not I, negate the latter. The, 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 the commercials were about the latter, not the former. Yeah, I'll say this. It's healthy depending on what you get. 
they they'll show you the calories and all that stuff. And so if you go in there and yes, get a bunch of processed meat and get some white bread and you eat seven different cookies in Lay's potato chips, then yeah, it's probably not going to work for you. But if you get sun chips and you get a healthy sub and you get one cookie. Uh, yeah, no. Um, uh, a friend of mine, like, unless you're, unless you're Michael Phelps and you're on like that 40,000 calorie a day diet or whatever, you cannot go to Subway and get a foot long anything probably even the footlong veggie delight and be on a responsible calorie count for that meal. You just can't. Um, I had a friend that ate Subway multiple times a week, but he would go and get a footlong chicken bacon ranch with no vegetables on it. First of all, hold, he's getting bacon. That's that he's out. No, oh, you're, but, you're but, getting also the, bacon. but also the chicken and the cheese and the yeah. ranch with no vegetables, but a footlong yeah. chicken bacon ranch, probably on white bread or one of the variations of white yeah. bread. And, um, it's a guy who, um, is always complaining about how he's not in shape. I'm like, yeah, well, no, no kidding. You gotta get, like, gotta get some veggies. So and, uh, <laughs> I love him. He's one of my you best. Can't friends, eat it every day, yeah, on, man. So and like, you can't eat every day. Yeah. So the, the Subway has done it. I don't know if it's a scam. I think it's just like everything else in American life. It's it's smart marketing. If you go and get a six inch turkey on wheat with no cheese, then you're gonna. That's that's a healthy but relatively healthy sandwich. But who actually goes and does that? Everybody goes and gets a foot-long pizza sub with double cheese. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? I love the pizza sub. I could go eat one. I could go eat like two right now. But uh, I won't because I want to live to see 49. That's, that, was, that was some good Subway slander. I enjoyed that. I, also, <laughs> I like Subway. I like Subway. But uh, All right, football question from the 4 for 0. What is your prediction for where the Buckeyes will be in the last preseason ranking before the start of the 2021 season? Oh, bonus. Who will be the top five? Hoping this forces you guys to go a step past just predicting the outcome of this year. So the preseason ranking, I actually read this wrong. I didn't realize they meant 2021. So they're saying Justin Fields is gone. Wyatt Davis is gone. Josh Myers might be gone. Sean Wade is gone next year, but also Trevor Lawrence is gone. Right. And also, you know, Najee Harris and a bunch of Alabama defenders are gone. This, I do feel like there is going to be, maybe I'm just Ohio State Clemson centric, but why wouldn't I be? I think there's like, there's, there's going to be a little bit of a reset, right? So it's like, who's going to be, who's going to be the best quarterback in college football going into the 2021 season, right? Like, I don't, it like, is it Spencer Rattler? Is it like, well, Spencer had some struggles in his first year as a starter, but now he's the Heisman favorite. Watch out for Oklahoma, right? I, I don't, I'm trying to think, I don't know everybody off the top yeah, of my I, head. But yeah, I got one. Um, these, these schools, Clemson's going to reset. Is it going to be DJ Ugalele? Alabama might reset. Is Bryce Young going to be the guy? Ohio State's going to reset with one of their three young quarterbacks. So, and so much of preseason ranking is based on quarterbacks. So, I think I think it's very interesting. Steven, who do you got? Uh, maybe Georgia with JT Daniels, who was third in that 2018 quarterback rankings behind Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. He'll be their starter next year, transfer from USC. He's not playing this year, obviously. Um, so no, maybe is, they have. He's trying to play. He's trying to play, isn't he? Isn't he trying, trying to play to, right now? But not as of right now. He's not playing right now. Okay. Try, trying to and actually, be, you know, yes, he's trying to get on the field this year. But if he doesn't, he's the, he's clearly going to be their starter next season. And if so, Georgia might be ranked number one. Just when you look at the recruiting classes they put together in the past couple of years and all that talent, and now they've got a five-star quarterback with it. I mean. There's maybe a path for them to be preseason number one. Yes, and then probably Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma. I think Ohio State probably will be around five or six just because that's losing a lot. 
And also, there's just – we're not going to – I don't know if we're going to see nearly as much of either C.J. Stroud or Jack Miller as much as we're going to see D.J. Ugalele this season just because of how Clemson runs things. It is losing a lot. However, we've also seen the way that people vote in these preseason polls. I mean, LSU, with all that they lost, was still getting a number one vote coming into this season. I think if – especially if OSU, as we've predicted, wins a national championship, I would be surprised if they were lower than – fourth to start next year i mean they were number five i think in the preseason poll last year um without nearly the same coming off of nearly the same kind of season so my i threw in um i think alabama clemson are still really high um and georgia and so then i put osu fourth and then i was i really struggled to come up with who i thought would be number five so i put uh lsu as someone that i think when people look at just the the pure talent rankings at that point will kind of jump back into people's consideration. Plus they'll, they'll have some things that they're, that are some, some, some areas where they're really green right now, I think will kind of start to solidify by the end of the season. I guess the question in the end is, is it going to be anything that's going to shake the idea that Ohio state Clemson and Alabama in a preseason poll are perceived as the three best programs in the country. It doesn't mean that they have to be one, two, three, right? I mean, maybe they'll be, one, three, five or whatever, but like they're always going to be in the mix, no matter who comes through, what is going to change. And yes, maybe you have a year like Alabama did last year where you lose a game or two and you don't finish there, but what is going to change to ever shake those three out of the top five in the near future? I don't know what it would be. A a coaching departure. I mean, it'll be like, I mean, USC used to be in this position, right? Like you would thought like, when will USC ever not be one of the top five teams in the country to start the season? And now they're, you know, they're in the middle of the pack. They're, they're, they're not anything special the way they used to be because um, Pete Carroll left and went somewhere else to win Super Bowl. So I think if, if Ryan Day were to leave and OSU didn't make the same kind of hire or obviously Saban leaving at some point or, or Daba leaving at some point for the, either of those programs, um, you could see a dip. But I think that's what it would take at this point. I think as long as those three guys are – entrenched where they are um and maybe that's early to say with ryan day only being year two but it seems like that trajectory is fair um i think those those are always going to be top five programs or somebody to start to know, start a make, season they'll have that benefit of the doubt or somebody just makes a really good hire you know if usc at some point makes the right hire and all of a sudden they're able to keep a lot of that california talent home i mean the top three quarterbacks in the country from california none of them are on usc's roster so i mean or, you know, a Big 12 team decides to finally play defense. Not, I mean, that's not going to happen. But more importantly, if USC gets it together and they make the right coaching hire and they're able to keep talent at home, I think they'll re-enter that discussion. Yeah, I think that pushes out the Georgias and the LSUs and the Floridas and the Auburn, whoever, Oklahoma. But that doesn't necessarily push out one of those three. Yeah, I actually think Florida. Florida, because Dan Mullins is a, is a good coach, and he hasn't been at Florida all that long, but that's a program that has won before. That's a program that should be able to recruit. They, they might jump up there and, and start joining that kind of every year top five soon as well. Um, some of the topics ahead, Tyreek Johnson, Josh Proctor, punt returner, Urban Meyer at Texas, question mark. Funniest holiday moment, the grossest thing we've eaten. Um, what do we like about wearing masks? Which coaches would fight zombies? Well, a good mix of uh, football stuff and uh, some weird stuff. Question number seven, though, is specifically for Nathan. It's another poll question from the two one six. What do you think of voters who had no issue voting for SEC teams the first three weeks when the SEC teams hadn't played? Now saying they won't vote for teams that haven't played a game. Nathan, I have not been following this that closely. I, I, I'm assuming. 
The decision-making process of how to vote for teams that haven't played is very complicated. Is it, in fact, true that some voters have sort of changed their principles on this? And what do you think is the right way to handle it? I guess I don't know if it's fair to say they've changed their principles. I'll give them a, a slight benefit of the doubt. I did talk to one voter who said who, – who was voting for SEC teams – when the Big Ten – so there was a time where we were not allowed to vote for Big Ten and Pac-12 teams. They had canceled their seasons. They did not have a season scheduled to be played. We could not vote for them. And then even once the Big Ten announced that it was going to have a season, until they had a schedule in place, we were not going to vote for them. In the interim of that next week, the Pac-12 announced it was having a season, and so did other conferences. So then they just said, screw it, you can vote for everybody. When they said that, there were, team, there were people who then decided that they were not going to vote for anybody who hadn't started playing, which the SEC and, I guess, ACC, other conferences, had Big 12, had already started doing by then. So I did talk to one voter who said the difference in their mind was when they were voting for the SEC, it was, a, it was, a, it was an imminent season. It was about to start. They were voting – you know, they voted in the preseason, and then – there was, I guess, maybe one or two polls before the SEC started, but it was still very imminent. It was like right there. It was going to start. And the ACC started pretty much right away. And um, But for the Big Ten, it was still going to be a month or more away before they started games. And that's why they were reserving voting for Big Ten, Pac-12, other conferences like that. Uh, I guess I – I don't feel that way. I went right back to voting for Big Ten and Pac-12. I felt like it's a mess, but that's just going to happen this year. That's just the way it is. And I'm trying to do what I think the poll asks us to do, which is give us a snapshot each week of who the best teams in college football are. And just because a team hasn't started its season yet, I don't know if I can exclude them. I think I have to introduce those teams back in the mix and take my best guess, just as I did before the season when no games had been played. So that's how I've been approaching it. All I want is consistency. I think people should try to be consistent in their in the way they're not consistent in how you whether you vote for a specific team the same way each week because I think that should change each week. That should be part of your consistency that you reassess everything. But I want some consistency just in the way that you think, in the way that you like the basic philosophy of your poll. So I guess I would say that next year, if there are teams that for whatever reason don't start immediately then maybe they shouldn't get voted for i don't know but that, that i was just that's one voter gave me that reason that they, because the big 10 season was so far away and the pac-12 season was so far away that they weren't going to vote for those teams until at least it got closer to the season for them polls are stupid it's a mess it's a pandemic it has no effect on how the college football playoff committee is gonna vote for anybody so don't worry about it ohio state fans i completely agree with the idea of consistency of the thought process is what matters the most. But to ask the 60 people involved to do that is an impossibility. And too many people have shown over time that they don't have that ability. So I don't want to waste any more time on it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't it will matter. catch up. It will catch up. And this is why there's 62 votes. It's why it's not just everybody thinking the same way. It's 62 different votes. And that's how they come up with the poll. So you can have 62 idiots think, do it wrong 62 different ways instead of just like exactly. eight different ways from the nine one eight. What's the chances? What are the chances that we see Tyreek Johnson play meaningful snaps or have a potential start at corner or slot corner? This is Dakota in Oklahoma. Steven, we've talked with Kerry Combs. We've gotten an impression about maybe how it's going to shake out. Tyreek Johnson is there. What are the chances that he really plays meaningful snaps you think this year 
Well, it depends on, as we've talked about before, what they do with that other cornerback slot. Is it basically just going to be Sean Wade is always on the field, and then that other spot is a rotation of two people? It's not going to be three people because that's probably ridiculous, but if it's two guys rotating, there's a chance that it's him and seven banks if Cam and then Cam Brown is probably if Cam Brown goes back into the slot, but if it could just be Cam, Cam Brown and seven banks, so it really just depends on you know how they want to handle things. Last year they didn't rotate, but Kerry Combs has been known to rotate guys in the in the past. So it depends on if they want to rotate that other spot, but then also can he beat out Cam Brown to be the guy who rotates with seven banks? Because right now clearly seven banks is a starter. Nathan, what do you think? I think he'll play but I it does not sound like he's going to be in position to start I mean we don't have any indication of that right now and even at you know the the texter specifically asked about slot corner we didn't really hear his name brought up in relation to, to slot corner at all I think it's it's more of like Steven's saying like where does he fit on the outside and I think he's fourth at best right now on the outside I don't know if that's true and I don't know that we know that for sure, which is where my possible quibble is. And I think I agree with Steven. If we're making the assumption, and I think it's reasonable because Kerry Combs said it, that like Marcus Williamson's kind of the guy in the slot. And then the other guys who are working in at the slot are not any of these other main guys, right? That it's Ronnie Hickman and it's uh, Cam yeah, Martinez, Martinez and guys like that. It's not Banks. It's not Brown. It's not Johnson. So then that leaves. Okay. So then there's four guys on the outside, right? Sean Wade, Seven Banks is the assumed starters, and then Tyreek Johnson and Cam Brown behind them. And the whole point, as Steven said, is how much rotation will there be in there? I don't know that we know that Cam Brown is ahead of Tyreek Johnson. That's fair. That's fair. So that's the one thing that we don't know. And I don't know, I don't know that the fourth outside guy will play much. I think it's possible the third outside guy does have a meaningful role. So I think that's the opening for Tyreek Johnson. Because if I had to guess, my guess would be, as, as Stephen said, Sean Wade kind of doesn't come off the field, and then the other spot kind of is a rotation to some degree with seven banks first in that rotation. But if Tyreek Johnson can be ahead of Cam Brown, then you're the guy in that rotation with seven banks, and that's real snaps. Not a starter, but real snaps. So I just – I don't know. I think there's a – maybe was enough happening in the spring to maybe think, hey, don't – like don't sleep on Tyreek Johnson. Just like don't – and we would love to get more info – We'd love it. I wish we could watch practice, but maybe don't sleep on Tyreek Johnson having something to do with this back end. Especially next. in the world where we thought Cam Brown was going to be the slot corner back in the spring. Well, back and back in the spring, yeah. Back in the spring, we thought Wade Banks and Brown were going to be the top three and they were going to, they were going to sprinkle that out, however yeah. they did. And then it, it turns out that's not the case. Exactly right. Question number nine is about Josh Proctor in the secondary. It's from the 312. Why is everyone so big on Josh Proctor? Didn't he have a couple big missed tackles against Clemson? Nathan, how should we view the fact that Josh Proctor had some missed tackles against Clemson? How should we allow that to influence our overall perspective on Josh Proctor? I think it's absolutely fair to point out that Josh Proctor did not play a great game in that role against Clemson, which is a role that was really kind of specific to that Clemson game. I think it's also fair to say that you could name a long list of Ohio State players who would probably tell you they had their worst game against Clemson or a game that they wish they had back. And that list includes Justin Fields, who threw a couple picks and had two others that doinked off a Clemson player's chest or hands. Um, I, I was just re-watching this game the other day for people who listened yesterday when we talked about the linebackers and read what I wrote about Pete Werner. And they 
there was a there was a play where uh, one of Proctor's good plays was where he had to kind of clean up and, and make a tackle where um, a Clemson receiver is about to get downfield and, and he stepped up and made the tackle and the reason he had to make the tackle was because another defensive back had completely whiffed on it had bounced the had bounced off the Clemson guy like a wad of Kleenex and that defensive back's name was Jeff Okuda just completely missed the tackle and and Proctor had to come in and finish it so you know I I don't do I think his performance was so disastrous that it means that it he can't be a good defensive back this year no I think it was when we finally talk to Josh Proctor again I think he'll probably he'll be asked about that game and I'm assuming that he'll probably say something along the lines of that was kind of an eye-opener and gave me things I had to work on just as Master Teague kind of said the same thing today like he, he being disappointed in this performance against Clemson and that you know he wants to have he wants people to be able to count on him in big games and uh he didn't show that the first time around. He knows he's going to be in a prominent position this year. And I expect Josh Proctor to probably say a similar thing. Steven, what do you think? I think he had some good moments and he had some bad moments in that Clemson game. He had a, I think they blitzed him um, off the edge on one of the plays in the Clemson game, if I remember that correctly. But I think last year he was very boomer bust, but he was also in a situation where it seemed like he was always going to be boomer bust. He only played 123 snaps last year, according to 11 Warriors. So he didn't have a role. So we didn't get to see much of him. I think if he's the starting one high safety, single high safety this year, and he's comfortable and he's constantly on the field and getting the chance to make plays, I think he's going to be better because of that. Instead of just being a guy where you had games where you got DMPs and now all of a sudden in the most important game of the year, you're playing important snaps. They, they put him in kind of a no-win spot. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that, that his performance or some of his missed plays in the Clemson game is more reflection on the coaching staff and – asking a guy, as Steven said, that didn't play a whole lot. They didn't really play that look a whole lot. And then here we go. Now you're playing that in that game. Um, He had 19 snaps in that game. That was the second most snaps he played the whole year. Only the Rutgers blowout. Did he play more? So I think that's on his staff. I I think a lot of times we assume, hey, this guy's talented guy. He's a good player. He's top 100 national recruit. He's ready for his for the for, for you know his time in the spotlight. Put him out there, and it's like he's never done this. And now you're asking him to do it against Trevor Lawrence. So I would not give up on Josh. I almost just would throw it out. I mean, honestly, I don't think it's reflective. And there's been enough guys over over the years who've had a bad game when they were young, and it wasn't reflective of who they became. I would be on alert for them also really liking Marcus Hooker. I was going to say this. This podcast has been really out front on the potential of Marcus Hooker being yeah. a factor here. So, like, uh, you know, I, but, but I, my guess would be if for, if, for instance, Marcus Hooker feels like he's playing in front of Josh Proctor, right, that when there is, when there is one safety in the game, maybe it's Marcus Hooker, I would, I would think that's maybe more reflective on liking Marcus Hooker and not like, hey, Josh Proctor had his chance and blew it, right? I think Josh Proctor's going to play. I think when we talk to Kerry Combs about this, they're going to find a way to play, to have two safeties on the field at times, more than they did last year. And if there are two safeties on the field, they're going to be Proctor and Hooker. I don't think there's a third mm-hmm. safety that's going to work into that. And so, um, but not really an evaluation point. I don't think the coaches would view it at that as that. And I don't think fans really should view that Clemson game as a true evaluation of Josh Proctor. All right, that's nine questions in. Keep it a nice brisk pace. Nice brisk pace. We're going to come back with question 10, which is about punt returners. We like to talk about that. We're going to talk about is Tom Herman on the hot seat at Texas and the texter who wants Urban Meyer to replace him. And then we have a question at the end of this podcast that I, re- I responded to the texter and I said, this is the question. 
that will cause Buckeye Talk to fold in on itself and create a black hole in the podcast world. This is the question to end all questions. And I saved it for last because it may be the last question we ever answer on Buckeye Talk. We will be back right after this. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. We're up to, I think it is question number 10. As we move through our texture questions, hey, would you want to be a guy or a person who could uh, send us a question? It's there for you, 614-350-3315. You send a text message to that number. You get back a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. Let's see what this whole text thing that Doug won't shut up about. What's the deal with it? And then if you like it, $3.99 a month after that. We're coming up on the start of the season. Would be a good time to try, test it out before the season starts. We have interviews that we keep doing um, with the Buckeyes. And, you know, when you get around interviews, we, we text out what they're saying right away. We text out analysis. Steven texts out a bunch of recruiting stuff. Um, and uh, it's fun. So you I feel like that, that's an important thing to say. Like if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, we're not trying to get you to pay $3.99 a month just to ask us questions. It's right. one of the side benefits of all the information you get, hopefully, from the text messages. Right. The involvement with the podcast is a bonus, but it's really the information and analysis in your phone as it happens, which is the most valuable part of it. Didn't uh, somebody and, get say, say in a review that this was now a paid podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, it's not. So that person uh -huh. I blocked on Twitter and that person can cram it up their cram hole. So, yeah. It, did you pay? Did you pay to listen to the podcast? Are you paying any money right now to listen to the podcast? You're not? Then it's not a paid podcast. But are you noticing the live read? Got a new live read in there. I'm in the commercial break talking about uh, a company. So that means that's good for us too. So anyway, thanks to everybody who's listening. Thanks to everybody who subscribes on text. We love you. Let's get to question number 10. From the 239, who will be returning punts and how will it go? Will we get a return touchdown this year? I know Doug can get a little goofy with this, so it's good for both football and goofiness. Because when I put out the call, I said we want football questions and goofy questions. Steven, who's the punt returner? Yeah, from what we watched on practice, obviously Demario McCall will be in there as well, but he wasn't at practice. Garrett Wilson, Mookie Cooper, Jackson Smith, and Jigba all took reps back there. Obviously, Garrett Wilson showed some things in the punt return game last year. I think so. I think they're going to try to get a punt return touchdown next season. I think – the, I, depending on where it's at, on the, where, the, where the ball is on the field, is whether or not they, they've tried to block punts in the past. I think they might add in an idea of sometimes they throw Garrett Wilson back there with the idea of we want you to go try to score a touchdown. I'm interested to see who is the K.J. Hill of that group. Of We're just back there just for short hands, just fair catch it, but we know you're going to be able to catch the ball. And Garrett Wilson buffed some punts last year. Jackson Smith and Jigba and Mookie Cooper are both you know, freshmen. Um, maybe it's Demario McCall, but who's that? Who out of that group? Who's the new KJ Hill? Where their sole job is to make sure they just catch the ball. Why wouldn't it be Garrett Wilson? I, I think the way he kind of attacked it last year was he would try to take off before he had it, as if the, the whole point of him being back there was to try to get yardage and maybe try to score a touchdown. So maybe that's how they use him in a world where they do kind of rotate who's back there. That's his role is when they're trying to be aggressive with the punt return game, that's the only time he's back there, especially in a world where now he's the second option on the offense. Last year, Garrett Wilson, 14 punt returns. Tomorrow McCall, eight. K.J. Hill, five. Nathan, how do you think this shakes out? I think it'll still be Garrett Wilson. Um, and I think I like their chances of being able to take one home because I kind of like, as Steven is saying, I mean, it, we talked about this last year. I mean, it was both the, the 
problem and the potential great benefit that I thought there were times where Garrett Wilson got a little bit ahead of himself, but once that sinks up, he's going to, he'll, he'll break one. He'll, he'll, he'll eventually break one. I, I think. And, and now does it happen this season? I don't know. I think they're going to probably still receive a lot of punts. I don't know if it'll be quite as many as it did last year. This defense is going to be quite as stifling. I don't think, but I, I like his chances. Cause I think a lot of it last year was you saw the potential kind of mixed with the, the freshman, um, just the freshman skittishness that you would see, or just, just like the, like you said, getting ahead of yourself, just not having, just not having that, that foundation yet, the lack of a foundation for freshmen. I was trying to go for alliteration and it wasn't working before. So um, I just think he's, he's a, he'll be a more complete player as a sophomore. He'll have um, a better head about himself in those situations. I think he knows that that's something that people have a question about because it was a problem. He turned it over a couple of times. I think he'll try to clean that up, but also they, they want him to keep that explosiveness. Would you do you guys have any apprehension about having Garrett Wilson back there as his role in the offense increases? And now it was never an issue with KJ Hill. KJ Hill like led this team in receptions, you know, two of the last three years or whatever it was and was back there a lot. Is that any worry? Nathan, you're shaking your head now? No, I mean, I don't know really that he really is going to catch any more balls than KJ Hill did. And, and like you said, a KJ Hill held up pretty well. Um, size wise, it's not like Garrett Wilson is more prone to injury that we should think at any, in any way at this point. And, and they may even end up rotating at that slot more than they did last year with KJ Hill. Um, although yeah, obviously KJ Hill didn't really have that job as much last year. It kind of traded off, but I know I, I don't really think that it's a big concern. Ted Ginn I, Jr. I, was the returner when he was a starting receiver. Steven, any concerns for you? Um, yes. Uh, Ted Ginn Jr. is a great example of that, but yes, just because like I said, he is your second best receiver in the room and also, the KJ Hill comparison is not the same because like, like I was already said, KJ Hill was back there just to make sure they had a secure guy back there to catch the ball. It wasn't necessarily always to go be aggressive and try to score. And I don't know how often Ohio State's going to try to do that. So if you have other options like Demario McCall, like Jack Smith and Jamie Mookie Cooper, I know J- uh, Jamison Williams had a chance to get back there last year and he just muffed it. If you have other options, you don't necessarily have to rely on him every single time. They haven't had a punt return for a touchdown since Jalen Marshall in 2014. I think this is a chance for them to be more dynamic. I think like special teams punt coverage could be one of those areas that teams are crappy at because of the pandemic, because you're limited in practice and that kind of thing. So um, I think he'll be back there most of the time. I think Garrett Wilson will be, and I think he'll get one this year. I think this is the year finally, but as Steven has pointed out correctly, it's all a balance. When it, when is it worth trying to do something? When is it, Hey, we'll just catch it and let our offense do the work. Um, they don't get in spots all that often where you necessarily need a return for a touchdown, but I think they might want a return. He had a 52 yarder last year, otherwise didn't do a lot back there. Um, I hope he's back there because I would like to see it. Number question 11 from the 614. Which coach in the power five do you foresee having the hottest seat come the end of the year? I believe several have to feel it starting to warm up, particularly Tom Herman if this season goes the way his past three have Nathan, you have, you're voting, you know, who stinks. Who do you think might be, uh, might be on the hot seat? Well, by voting, I, I know less about who stinks because they aren't the people I'm voting for, but um, you know, Kevin, some, or I mean, Tom Herman obviously is one. And I think Clay Helton is one who got a lot of attention for a place where they might have to make a move soon. If, something doesn't change. Uh, Kevin Sumlin in Arizona is another one that I think he was five and seven his first year and four and eight in his second year. I think at some point you have to show 
a step forward or you're really kind of stuck in the mud. And Arizona seemed it would be one of those programs that I think has a higher expectation for itself than to be muddling around in that sort of uh, at that kind of plateau for too long, that sub bowl plateau. There's no reason Arizona should go three years in a row and not make it to a bowl game. Um, another guy I thought like Jonathan Smith at Oregon state, although they went from two wins to five in the, his second year. So maybe if they get another, you know, all the, all they have to do is probably make a bowl game to show some progress. He's um, their the, savior. He's their savior. I think, I think Jonathan Smith, he's, isn't he an alum? I think he's there. I think he's got it, but oh, I think oh. at some point you've got to do it. At some point you can't just be scuffling around forever. They um, were in not, the freaking toilet when he got there though. They were, right, that's they what were I said. like they the were, of the pac 12. They went from two to five. So I think as long as he shows, keeps showing some kind of progress, he, they're probably okay. And then I, I, at some point, don't we have to put Scott Frost on this list? But you are, you, you're, you're warming this up. You've got a little, you've got a hot plate there under these coaches' butts. It's very interesting. So Jonathan Smith is a former quarterback at Oregon State, just like Jim Harbaugh is at Michigan and Scott Frost is at Nebraska. I do think it's, a di- it's different when you like bring home a guy to come save the program. It's like, Listen, they cut bait on Mike Riley at Nebraska pretty quick. They cut bait on like Bill Callahan, I think, not didn't give him a super long time. Like Scott Frost, I, I just don't know. When you fire Mike Riley, it's like, why are you firing Mike Riley? It's like, because we're getting Scott Frost. If Scott Frost, who won a fake national title at Central Florida and is a former Nebraska player and is like the heir to the Osborne empire, can't get it done at Nebraska. Where are you going? So, which, which applies kind of to Michigan that I don't know. Yeah. It hasn't been as good as people thought, but I think to make a move like that with a guy like that, after a hire like that, you have to know what your next move is. And that's, I think why it's hard for Michigan, why it's hard for Nebraska. If not him, who? So I would dispute that a little bit, Nathan. I, I, that's a tough spot to be in. It doesn't mean you have to give Scott Frost 10 years, but I think you got to suck it up a little bit and, and give him seven, right? Because otherwise you're admitting that maybe we are just never going to be who we once were. I guess so, here's the, the, the one thing I thought there, sorry to interrupt Steve, but so the four and eight, his first year, five and seven, his second year, but you look at Nebraska's schedule that the, just this big 10 schedule they have to play I could totally see them winning one or two games out of these eight. So if Nebraska's, if Nebraska's playing in that seventh place game, I, I, I'm not saying they'll fire him, but I mean, that doesn't, that, that has to put you on notice a little bit that the that, that, that next year has to be something legitimate. Is the pandemic an excuse? For everybody. Well, I think they've. It's not just the pandemic. I think they're already talking about the schedule being an excuse. You've already got the AD complaining uh, louder than anybody as far as this being a something that was kind of unfair, or that Nebraska has been, um, you know, put up against a wall by this schedule. So maybe that probably bails him out more than anything else. Stephen, who do you got on your list? Um, I mean, you brought up Michigan, and you have a point. But how many years can you lose to Ohio State and lose your bowl game before Michigan starts to at least have the? Con- Think about it. It's that combination. I understand Ohio State's on a different strategy for talent-wise, but you can't. You you've had two game, two seasons where you've won ten plus ten or more win, games, and you've only won one bowl game since you've been here. So at some point, something's got to give. You either got to at least get one game against Ohio State, or you need to at least start finishing your season off with a win. But at least the bowl games that they're getting into are against like Michigan, or I mean against like Alabama. It's not like they're. It's not like you're. 
Nebraska isn't even getting to a bowl game or you're a program that's getting to bad bowl games and can't beat like the sixth place team in the ACC. Like, I don't know if you're, you're, you're winning 10 games a year. I don't know that Michigan's a place right now that fires a coach who wins 10 games a year. I don't know. I, I think at some point you need to start winning bowl games. I, I don't I think. Uh, I mean, the, I think the rivalry is, is it bigger than the bowl game? Yeah. Sometimes but, the bowl game is like, you're sad. You didn't play that well in the bowl game. Uh, who knows who even plays in a bowl game anymore too. I, but I think like as you far know, as your roster, that, but that combination of it, but also, also, yeah, you can't beat your rival. I think the Ohio State game and and what you do against Notre Dame and Michigan State and that kind of stuff matters more. Yeah. I, I would not go there with either of them. I, I think, I think Frost and Harbaugh are okay. Do you guys think Tom Herman's on the hot seat? This is a thing that Ohio State fans like to talk about. It's going to lead into our next question. Tom Herman is in year four at Texas, seven and six, ten and four, eight and five. Now he's two and one this year. 27 and 16 overall at Texas. They finished 25th in the AP poll last year. They finished ninth in 2018 in his second year. Uh, they have not won a big 12 title since he's been there. What do you think? How, how hot is it for Tom Herman? Do you think it's, th- if they have like another eight and five type year, do you think he might be gone? I think that he just hired Mike Yersich and that just got him the number one player in the country who most people think is the next Trevor Lawrence. So it might've bought him some time. Um, so it's not That's as good point. hot as I don't, it's not as hot as it would have been had they not just landed Quinn Ewers, but also some of the Texas always has talent. Yes. But a lot of these guys are crystal ball. A lot of these guys are the number one player in the country at their positions and they're crystal ball to choose Texas. So I think that type of recruiting can buy you a little bit of time when you haven't, Especially when you bring in a new quarterback coach who can kind of revamp things the way Ryan Day did for Urban Meyer when he got to Ohio State. Uh, I think that's a good point. I think the recruiting is the most important point because I think when you're not winning on the field, sometimes that leads to your recruiting also takes a downturn. And then it's like, okay, this is irredeemable. This is the wrong guy. But if you're landing some recruits while you're not quite doing on the field exactly what you want to do, I think that does help a little bit. Class of 21, they currently have the number 15 class uh, in 21. And then uh, Quinn Ewers, he's 22, Stephen? Yeah. He's 22. They, they have the they number only four have, class. And they have number four class in 22 with, with Ewers as that five-star commit. So um, I, I, think, I think that might be right. And I just think, you know, they've run through some coaches there. Um, I think five years – try to, you know, kind of get a full roster of your own, get, get through like a full recruiting cycle. Um, and I, I always, I'm a big believer in, in letting you sometimes get to a second quarterback that Sam Ellinger, he's yeah. played Sam Ellinger for a long time there. Again, I think he's been fine, but he's not, he has not maxed out on maybe what people thought he was going to be. And so it's like, all right, well that he didn't, maybe he isn't quite as good. Is it, is that Tom Herman's fault? Is it the system? Is it this individual player? But maybe let's see what he can do with, a, with another five-star quarterback. So um, I think Clay Helton is more realistic. Like, I think they kind of wanted to fire Clay Helton before. And there's somebody sitting there. They're, they're going to get somebody. Like, if USC – like, the question of, well, who's Nebraska going to get or who's Michigan going to get? I don't have that question with USC. They're going to get somebody big. They're going to get somebody better than Clay Helton. Is there any doubt that USC's next coach will be better than Clay Helton? Yeah. They're just d- deciding when they want that to happen. Is there any doubt? That's a great job. There's like no doubt about it. They've decided that treading water with Clay Helton is acceptable for some reason. He took over in the middle of 15, finished five and four, 
Then he went 10 and 3, 11 and 3, 5 and 7, 8 and 5. So somehow being 13 and 12 the last two years at USC is like, okay. And again, maybe the pandemic saves them because they're going to have a screwy half season in the Pac-12 and maybe you don't pull the trigger. But it doesn't have to be Urban Meyer. And I've, I've heard from enough smart people that, I mean, USC is kind of messed up right now with some of the, you know, with the Lori Laughlin stuff um, and everything else going wrong there that I, I don't, doesn't feel like Urban would end up being the answer there, but they get somebody, right? I mean, they, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm even, I'm trying to think like, like who, who would be a, a higher off the top of my head, but they would go get like a really successful, maybe they get PJ Fleck or something, right? I mean, they go get That's somebody wrong. good. So I think that will be the next guy. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Honestly, if, if, if PJ Fleck in the next two years gets Minnesota to the Big Ten championship game and back-to-back years, that would make a lot of sense. But I do think maybe Herman's seat is not quite as hot, but let's go to question number 12. Not really a question, but tell me I'm not crazy. Texas fires Tom Herman and hires Urban Meyer. I think Texas makes more sense than USC for Urban. This is from Joe in Toledo. I would agree with that Texas makes more sense than USC for Urban. And that's, again, that answers the question. Well, if you fire, who are you getting? If you fire Tom Herman, who are you getting? If you're getting Urban Meyer, then maybe eight and five with Quinn Ewers coming in isn't good enough for Tom Herman. Listen, we've been down the road. Go find all the national writers and everybody else out there who was convinced that Urban Meyer was going to be a head coach by, by now already, that he was going to be the head coach at USC or somewhere else. We're not going to try to pretend we know when Urban's going back. I'm not even sure that's the discussion, but just the theory of that. Steven, the idea, Tom Herman out, Urban Meyer in. Crazy or not crazy? I mean, no, it's one of the greatest coaches of all time, and it's either that job or the USC job where, or a Notre Dame job where we're like, yeah, of course, you fire the guy you have there for Urban Meyer, but that's pretty much all it is right now. It's just that he's one of those coaches where, yes, you fire your coach to hire him. I think, I think the better question almost is like, what place wouldn't hire Urban Meyer if they had the chance? Yeah. Like, is there any place that was going to fire their coach that wouldn't then hire Urban Meyer if he wanted to go there? Except maybe Michigan, I suppose. That would be kind of weird. Alabama. But, uh, I don't know. They wouldn't fire. What, what I'm saying they would not well, fire. Well, they would fire. But, I mean, I'm just saying not even a firing. Just if, if they ever head coach, what place that has a head coaching opening wouldn't hire Urban Meyer? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, anybody who thought that the way it ended for Urban with the Zach Smith stuff at Ohio State felt like we don't want to get involved with that. That would be – would there be certain schools? And I, that's maybe, maybe the impression. Maybe that USC just wouldn't want to get involved with that. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but perception matters. Um, like, we don't want to have that news conference and have have – at our introductory news conference for the head coach, have our coach get asked, asked about Zach Smith's stuff, right? Um, but that's very few, right? Because most of the time, if you're hiring somebody, it's like because you're already in trouble, because you already have things going wrong. And it's like, we'll weather that for however long it lasts and we'll get through it and it's fine. And we don't think it's that big a deal. And we don't really think he's, you know, did, did anything super wrong there. And then he's going to go out and recruit his butt off and hire great coaches and establish a culture and win. So we'll, we'll take the press conference hit. So I think you're right, Nathan, you know, 90% of schools would, would do that. There's some interesting parallels there. I mean, you know, capital city, big football state. I mean, Texas being an even bigger football state, um, the flagship university of the state, same as it was in Florida. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of parallels. It's an interesting thing to think about. And it's again, part of it is where would Urban go? That's always the thing of like, well, would he, would he decide to do that? But it's like, okay, well, like you said, he's at Florida, he's at Ohio State, 
We think he'd go to Notre Dame someday, but what, you know, Brian Kelly is doing a good job. USC made a lot of sense for a lot of ways. This makes sense. It's at Urban's level and how many are at Urban's level. Cause it's like, well, you know, Kentucky would hire Urban, but would right. Urban Illinois hire would hire him, it's but like, now. why, why would he go to Illinois or right. Kentucky or uh, Wake Forest or whatever? So what would pull him out of this? And I'll just say, I don't know. I can't tell what it is. He seems busy. He's got a million different irons in the fire right now with different things, which is either him settling into his post-coaching life. Look at me. I got this. I'm an advisor for this. And I have my restaurant. And he does a lot of media. He's having success on Fox. He does Big Ten Network stuff. You know, he does, he does the Letterman Rose show. Like, he's got a lot of stuff going on. And that's either contentment or that's, I got to get back to coaching. I'm trying to fill the gap with a million different things, but none of it satisfies my coaching urges. And I'm not going to pretend I know which way he would be leaning at the moment. Question 13. What is the funniest holiday moment you guys have ever had? So I sent these questions out ahead of time because they're kind of, you know, I'm not sure that you guys walk around with a funny holiday moment in your head. So I hope you looked at the questions and figured this out. Nathan, do you have a holiday moment to share? This is the only one that came to mind immediately, but um, we were talking about cooking before, and um, I think we're going to be talking about cooking again. And um, I, my my now wife and I like to make pancakes on the weekends, and we had I had a roommate one time who had an electric griddle that we would use to make pancakes. And like once you start using a griddle, it like it's a it's a transformational thing. It's like a whole new world of pancakes rather than just making them in a skillet. It's like so much better. You can actually get them golden brown in a, a much better way. And uh, so one year for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, I thought, oh, like a great gift would be to get her a griddle because she didn't live with me at the time. And she thought the same thing. We gave each other griddles for Christmas. That is like, that's like gift of the Magi or whatever. Yeah. Purse. It's like, I sold a griddle to buy my girlfriend a griddle who sold her griddle <laughs> to buy me a griddle. And now we have, do you still have two griddles? I, we only use one of them, but I think the other one's kicking around here somewhere. Plus now we've 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 lived places where we have the the stove comes with like the griddle burner in the middle too. Ooh, so nice. we, we're 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 up to our ears in griddles. Papa, tell us the story of the two <laughs> griddle Christmas. Uh, Stephen, what you got? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't really have a, a funny holiday moment. Um, at least not one that we can you know share on a podcast. So yeah, not really. Um, is that is that is it like a naked story? What is what is it like a story we can't? Is there like taking a dump somewhere or whatever? I always wonder what it's like. Well, you can't share it on a podcast. Is it <laughs> that so? It's a naked oh, story. Yeah. It's naked. Oh, it's naked. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Papa. My mom listens to this. So. Tell us the naked story. Um, oh, right, great. Okay, so now we're gonna have to have we have to have like a separate secret Buckeye talk so that Stephen's mom. <laughs> Stephen will text. Hear. Stephen will text. <laughs> yeah. What the story was and photos to our texters. for the innermost secrets of Stephen Means's life. So, okay. So you guys know how I like to talk about murdering people, right? And I act like, oh, I would go murder somebody. I'm so heartless and cruel. I'm capable of murder. So my wife and I lived in an apartment uh, a couple years out of college and we got a Christmas tree. And after we bought the tree, they put up notices around the apartment building that you can't have a Christmas tree. You can't have a live Christmas tree. You can only have a fake Christmas tree, I guess, because they thought a live Christmas tree would burn the apartment building down. But we already had the Christmas tree. And then we had something wrong in our apartment. And like the next day, like the super or whatever was coming to our apartment 
to fix the thing and he was going to see the live Christmas tree. And we were realizing this at like one o'clock in the morning. So we undecorated the Christmas tree and we took the Christmas tree out and we were walking around this darkened parking lot carrying a Christmas tree, much like you would carry a dead body if you had committed murder. And we were looking for, we we're going to put it like in the dumpster, but we would be worried that they were like, aha, we see that Christmas tree. We know someone had previously broken the rules. So we were walking around in the dark, trying to find a way, a place to dump this live Christmas tree that was illegal. And we, we walked into this field and we thought we found a ditch and it was like, oh, there's, here's this ditch. We'll throw it down in the ditch and then the Christmas tree will be down low and nobody will be able to see it. So we threw the Christmas tree in the ditch and the ditch was like eight inches deep. So it was just a Christmas tree lying on the ground in the middle of a field next to our apartment building. And it made me realize that while I could commit murder, I could not get away with murder because the, the frantic nature, the, the things that were surging through my body at one o'clock in the morning in the dead of night as my wife and I carried this Christmas tree, if that was a dead body and you were like, okay, well, we got to hide the dead. I can't, I, I would be caught in a day, half a day. Cause they would just go, there'd be a field next to my house and there would be a dead body lying in the field and like footprints from my front door to the dead body and back. So that is a heartwarming Christmas story that reminds us all, Papa, tell me the story about learning how you shouldn't commit murder. And that was it. So that's the only reason to this point in my life that I have yet to commit murder. It's not a story about why you shouldn't commit murder. It's a story about why you should put like a day's thought into committing the murder. Correct. Premeditated murder, much better. Yeah. Than oh yeah. For the moment talk. murder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What are we doing here? <laughs> like, do you think do you think there's someone listening to this podcast who has committed murder and has gotten away with it? Are uh, you listening right now? We have how many how many listeners? Yeah, probably. I always wonder That's a pretty good ratio. Listen, one I'm not, out of how many thousand? Thousands. Multiple yeah. thousands. I'm not yeah. I'm not laughing about murder. I'm not. I'm not. But I'm intrigued by murder. Listen, I'm not going to act like I'm the only person in the world intrigued by murder. There's a whole murder industry. Half the shows on TV, half the podcasts in the world are about murder. This is not a true crime podcast. But don't you, I mean, all of us, don't you think all of us at some point in our lives have like walked past a murder? Do you think oh, every no, 100%. Of- and and we, we go to work in a stadium of 100,000 people um, every Saturday. Like you go the odds that shopping. we've not walked past, yeah, or just, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. If you are a tech subscriber who has committed murder, text us. <laughs> All we have is your phone number, and we'll. I'll just do a poll. I'll do. A, can you imagine? I'll do a poll. Have you committed murder? It's like one vote. Yes. <laughs> we got six yeses. We got six yeses. If we have six yeses, I resign. Because yeah, I don't have, need that. Listen, we have I don't need yeses. that connection. We, Th- those odds have, don't work for me. We have six yeses. We have to cooperate with the police at that point. Yeah. I mean, we're here. We're not, you know, if you, if you commit murder, you should be caught. Um, from the 601, what's the grossest thing you have seen or eaten? Again, I don't think Stephen can say the grossest thing he's seen because his mom is watching, um, but his mom is listening. But eaten. Is there a crazy thing that we've eaten? 
Steven, you, anything weird or gross? Um, yeah. I'm, most people probably won't think it's gross, but I've had deer meat before, and it was the worst type of edible meat I've ever had. Yeah, see, mine, like, I, I had octopus, and there's a lot of people who think octopus is good, but I found it to be just inedible. Like, it's just, it's like chewing a rubber band. Yeah. I always get venison and veal confused. One is like a tender baby cow, right? And one That's is veal. deer. So yes. I never, I can never keep the two straight. Um, I mean, everybody's eating, I ate like an alligator appetizer, right? That's like a chicken finger, but it's an alligator. I don't know. Everything just, I mean, the whole thing tastes like chicken. We were in Arizona, when we were in Arizona for the Fiesta Bowl. Um, we ate, we stopped somewhere and like the appetizer that was kind of like a potato skin or like that kind of thing was cactus. Mm-hmm. That was actually pretty good. They, they, they took the needles out. So I didn't think the cactus was gross, but I found it, I felt, I felt daring eating cactus. And I found, I thought that was a good use of the landscape unless they murdered a nice cactus to feed me, but it probably died of natural causes and they just chopped it up. So um, I ate a cactus. I, we're, we're, none of us are like really crazy, weird, gross eaters. Right. I mean, I am not, I'm a, I think I forgot to say my favorite fast food meal, which is a plain hamburger, small fries and a large side Coke from McDonald's. So Steven, you're eating a well, Fuddruckers burger. Yeah. You are not eating anything gross, Steven. No, 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 no. I might try it if I'm on vacation and just to say I did it, but it's not a normal part of my diet now. Nathan, are, am, you, are you adventurous? I'm not that adventurous, really. I know I talk a big game as far as like eating more ethnic food and stuff like that, but it's, I'm not that adventurous. It's still, at the end of the day, it ends up being like a lot of meat and potatoes, just like Indian meat and potatoes or like Chinese meat and potatoes or they don't use potatoes a lot, but other veggies, you know, whatever. Yeah, meat tastes good. Uh, from the 937, question 15, one player you could add from another Ohio State sport to the football team or vice versa, a football player you would add to another team, any year to any team. So I'll go first while you guys think about this because I'm old. Um, Kyle Snyder is like an Olympic wrestler, Olympic gold medalist wrestler, one of the greatest athletes in Ohio State history. I assume he could be a guard. It's like, right? I mean, like Luke Fickle was a defensive tackle at Ohio State and was a state champion wrestler. A lot of these guys, those tough guys in the trenches who were good with their hands and stuff, I'm assuming Kyle Snyder could get some stuff done on the football field. So I would be intrigued by that. And then David Lighty, uh, the, what, the great basketball player at Ohio State, um, I think did play some high school football. And I think as much as like everybody loves to talk about like LeBron and what would LeBron have been like if he had played college football, played in the NFL and everybody says LeBron would have been like a tight end kind of thing. You know, David Lighty, like, you know, poor man's, poor man's, poor man's, poor man's. But, but David Lighty was quite uh, – and he had a knee injury that I think he wasn't ever quite as explosive at Ohio State as he was in high school. Um, but like a good combination of like size and speed and athleticism and toughness. Like I, I would have put David Lighty at like rush end or tight end and like great leader – hard-nosed, like just would have been a great football player. And I think they play high school football. And I, I always thought about what would David Lighty look like on a football field? Um, Steven, you're doing a lot of basketball. I, I assume you might have something there of maybe a football player you'd want to see on the basketball team or a basketball player you'd like to see on the football team. Yeah, Dewan Jones. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was all state in basketball in Indiana. Um, I, would, I think he could average 18 and 10 in the Big Ten right now if he, if he focused solely on that. So that's 100% where I'm going there. And then as current basketball players, I would say Kyle Young. He's pretty athletic. I would love to see him in like a goal line package as a tight end, just to see, you know, go up and get it. If he could really average 18 and 10 for the basketball team right now, Chris Holtman needs to be in the football locker room yesterday. 
He goes to every game, and it, he's, like, always joking, hey, I should be on the court. And I'm thinking, yeah, you probably should be. Chris Holt, could not, could not the Ohio State basketball team use 18 and 10 from somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Go get to Juan Jones. Nathan, you got, you got anybody percolating there? Yeah, I said we should put um, Jesse Owens on Jim Tressel's Ohio State football teams just so you could watch him just streak down the field behind everybody and then nobody even look at him. Just like in here, they threw another flat-footed screen pass to the fastest man on the planet. <laughs> and he was tackled for two yards because they did not hit him in stride. <laughs> I, I always say, I mean, one of the great things, and, and I, I, I've mentioned it several times, but if, if you're an Ohio State fan who goes by campus or has been to campus and, like, you have not gone by the Jesse Owens statue outside Jesse Owens Stadium, which is the track stadium behind the Woody Hayes Athletic Center – um, like you got to do it. It's one of my favorite. One of my it's my my favorite thing about going to Ohio State interviews is that I go in that back road and I drive past that Jesse Owens statue every time, and and not every time, but like thirty percent of the time I get out, and it just like blows my mind. And I think I've talked about this before. There is a there's a ride at Disney World in Epcot. It's the big golf ball ride, and it sort of is a, a ride that takes you th- sort of through the history of man. And there's a part where. They're, they're, it's like in the 30s and radio and the advent of TV and they, they're showing Jesse Owens in the Olympics running. Mm-hmm. And my kids are so tired of me saying, that's Jesse Owens. He's from Cleveland. He went to Ohio State. He's one of the greatest athletes of all time. Like that guy is here. His, he lit, that statue, it's a good statue. And, and it's like, it's a reminder. It's on a, it's a weird, it's on a weird part. It's kind of off on a corner of a parking lot by itself. It's on a frontage road that you don't really have a reason to be on unless you're going to park in that parking lot for an Ohio state event. And it's a statue of one of the 10 greatest athletes in American history. And he's just standing there and he has his Olympic medals on. And like, it is a thing. It is a thing to go stand and stand with Jesse Owens. And so if you've never done it as an Ohio state fan, I can't recommend it high enough. From the 267, question 16, I'm sure you'll get a ton of football questions, so here's a TV one. I recently decided to give in to the masses and start watching The Walking Dead. Do either of you watch The Walking Dead? I used to watch The Walking Dead until um, I I just started to hate myself for continuing to watch The Walking Dead, so I don't watch it anymore. Very relatable to some of our podcast listeners, I'm sure. Uh, I also do not watch it. The show's okay, but it has me thinking. Which college coaches are tough enough to survive if the apocalypse happened? I'm guessing Saban would be brutal in killing anyone he came in contact with to survive. Dabo would be nice at first, but end up stabbing everyone in the back. (laughs) I'm going to write a zombie question to throw shade at Dabo Sweeney from the 267. I'm not sure how Day survives, how Ryan Day survives. He's very strategic, but I'm not sure he'd have what it takes to get through. On the Ohio State staff, I'm guessing Kevin Wilson is the only one that would make it. I'm not sure why that is. Steven, who's your coach that would survive a zombie apocalypse? I think Saban would make it. Um, I, 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 I mean, he's the greatest coach in, in college football history. I think he might be the great, greatest at doing this as well, just because that mind works the same way. I agree with the Ryan Day approach to this, where like, he might be able to think it through but not be able to necessarily execute it, which is where you pair him with somebody who can execute it. I think Day comes up with the plan, Saban executes it, and everybody lives. And the zombies die. Nathan, who are you going to hang out with when the zombies come? So for people who've actually seen the show, I think of, of Saban as being kind of like the Negan. Like he would be the one who kind of like leads the semi-evil, like um, 
um, settlement or whatever, and they kind of like go out and they take whatever they want and they kind of make their own rules, uh, but, but they survive. So I think that might be his role. I think he would do well. I, I dispute that Kevin Wilson would be the best guy on OSU staff. I think it would be Larry Johnson. I don't know that – I think he just lives through everything. I think he would be like, – what 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 can really take down Larry Johnson at this point? I do think Ryan Day would probably do okay though, because I think I I feel like he would be smart enough to just kind of lay low. Like the, the 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 most annoying thing about The Walking Dead was that every week they got themselves into danger by just doing the stupidest things possible. Like they would they were constantly getting themselves killed off by just being idiots. It was it's it's a terrible show. It's terrible. It became a terrible show. And I don't think – I think Ryan Day would not do that. I think he would kind of buck that trend. So um, I also – when I was just looking across college football, I was like, well, who's like a survivor? Like who really would like survive against all odds? So I picked Mac Brown, I think, would somehow like find a way to be standing at, at the end of the apocalypse. And I started to think Mike Leach because if you're thinking about it from a Walking Dead standpoint, there's always like some goofball that they always keep around as like the comic relief slash whatever. But I actually think in his case he would be the first one like – that everybody else just like pushes out the door and then closes it behind him real fast. So like the zombies eat him while they go run the other way. I think maybe like Bobby Petrino would be a good survivor that like, he'd be every episode, he'd have like a neck brace on and a bruised up face from the zombies, but he'd be like, I'm still here. Um, I would ha- does have a guy driving around on a motorcycle too. Yeah. I would hang with, and I know he's not a college coach anymore, but I would hang with Vrabel and Fickle and um, Mike Vrabel and Luke Fickle, who were teammates at Ohio state were in that, 1995 Ohio State Notre Dame retalkables that we did. That is a nice looking dog you got there, Nathan. Yeah, um, he just decided to stand up. Yeah, so so I just think that's that's a combo that I would be willing to uh, to get behind and let Mike Vrabel and uh, Luke Fickle lead me through the apocalypse. Who's in charge of the plan and which one is in charge of executing it? Basically, and that's I think I think Vrabel is is probably a little bit. Um, probably a little more out front and Luke, Luke a little as a sidekick, but, but Luke also is like, I think, I think I always think like Vrabel would be like, I want to go kill 50 zombies. And Luke would be like, let's yeah. not kill 50 zombies. Let's kill 30 zombies and we'll kill 20 more tomorrow. And Vrabel would be like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, so I think that'd be a good combo. And I would be in the back yeah. saying, yeah, you go get those zombies. I'll, I'll cook dinner. Yeah. That's what I think the real question is. How long will those guys just drag you around or yeah. at what point do they just sort of let you fend for yourself? At what point does Doug become bait for the zombies so Mike Vrabel can get more kills? But I have never watched that movie. If they, if I did get killed, then do I become a zombie? Is that how it works on that show? Uh, depending on how you were killed, yes. Because I think I would be an annoying zombie. You might want to just rather keep me around, you know, making hot dogs in the back. Um, from the 859, question 17. If Justin Fields, this is back to football. If Justin Fields goes down with a season-ending injury before the playoffs, why were you even putting this out into the world? Do you think there's any chance Ohio State can still win a national title if no. Justin Fields gets hurt? Steven? No, they're done. If, if they lose one of the two best quarterbacks in college football, they're not winning a national championship. So I'm not saying 0% chance, but I'm saying scant chance and I, for two reasons. Number one, this defense does not give them as much margin for error as they had last year. I know they didn't have maybe the talent behind Fields, potentially a quarterback last year that they do this year, but the defense gives them less margin for error that puts more pressure on this year's offense than last year. And this offense doesn't have a J.K. Dobbins. We don't, we, you know, we think they've got some guys who can run the ball. We don't think they have a J.K. Dobbins. And Ohio State could rely on J.K. Dobbins down the stretch last year in a way that I don't know that they can just turn it over their running game this year. Although that doesn't give enough credit to the offensive line, probably. 
The hard thing about this is that you can never tell Ohio State fans anymore that they can't win a national championship with their backup quarterback because they won it with their third string quarterback. Now, point taken about they won it with Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott and Darren Lee and Vaughn Bell and like a hugely talented team where Cardale Jones didn't have to do it by himself. I do think there would be a difference between an injury later in the year where Kyle McCord, not Kyle McCord, where Jack Miller or CJ Stroud, whoever is the backup quarterback has had time to practice, has gotten some snaps as a Justin Fields backup and blowouts and that kind of thing. And that if you got to the end of the year, I don't think it would be impossible that by week like six or seven or eight, that say it's CJ Stroud, he would have his feet under him enough. Listen, this talented dude, talented dude. I wouldn't want, ha- I would not have, if I were a high state, would not want to have wanted to start the season with him at quarterback, especially in a pandemic. But I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible that by later in the year, that backup could be ready to do something, but I do think you would need him to more to be more than a game manager. He would have to, if CJ Stroud or Jack Miller came in, he'd have to come in and make plays. So do you have like, do you think that would be impossible? Cause he'd have to do something. He can't just hand the ball off and throw six yard outs. I think no, maybe, what, maybe yeah, it would work. I don't think it's but impossible. Also, I mean, imagine Ohio state being the number one seed and getting to play whoever the four seed is podcast callback from what we talked about the other day. That seems like a very winnable game with any quarterback they have on this roster. Not guaranteed, but a winnable game. So then you've got to go out and win one game against Clemson or Alabama. Listen, they benched Jalen Hurts to put Tua in to win the national championship. Like, is it impossible that C.J. Stroud could be as ready as Tua was in the second half of the national championship game? I don't think it's 100% impossible. I'll I'll give it a 5% chance. I think that there are some stark differences in both of those situations. One, no, Cardell Jones had never been a starter, but he had at least been in the program and had gone through some level of a development stage. And with Tua, that was just such a different – he just opened up some things for Alabama's offense that Jalen Hurts just couldn't do for them as far as vertical passing game. I don't necessarily think there's anything Jack Miller or C.J. Stroud can do that's going to, you know, open up things that Justin Fields didn't, like, didn't already have. So there's no new element to explore there. So that plus them only not having a spring and really only having a limited amount of snaps in, in practice because you have to give as many as possible to Justin Fields. It's just not a, it's not a comparable situation. I think it's a good point. They, they, they didn't – Jalen Hurts didn't get hurt. They decided to go to two of yeah. because he was different. I mean – CJ Stroud or Jack Miller is not better than Justin Fields. In that moment, Nick Saban thought Tua was better, and he was proven right. So it would be a step down. It's just would it, how much of a step down would it still maybe be possible? I think Ohio State would rather not find out. Question 18 from the 443, goofy question. Would you rather watch a, an Ohio State game this year being the only person in the stadium other than the teams, or would you rather watch a game in an, ex, in a, in an extremely crowded B-deck with full capacity. And they said, health concerns aside. So this is not a, are you worried you would get COVID by going to the game? This is, would you rather be crowded in with the masses in 100,000 seats, or would you rather be like, hey, you get the whole stadium to yourself? Nathan, which would you pick? At first, I was like, it's no question I'd rather have the crowd um, because I think that's just such a part of the experience but the more I thought about it, I was like, if it's if it's Ohio State, Michigan, and they're both undefeated, and it's for a trip to the Big Ten championship game, 
and you're the only one in the stadium, which means you go get to stand as close to the sideline as they'll let you stand, and you can hear everything, literally everything that's going on on the field, from the sidelines, from the coaches, etc. I think that could be pretty fun. So I might, but I don't. I wouldn't think that way about the Rutgers game, for instance. Right. Rutgers game, I would want there to be a crowd because. I want when I, when I leave halfway through the first quarter, I want somebody to come with me and go get a beer. Steven, what do you think? If I'm just going as a fan, I want the crowd because I want that fan experience and that comes with it. If I'm going as a sports writer, I want to be the only one there because that just opens up a world of possibilities of things you can write about because now you can hear everything that's going on. And it's just, and also you exclusively get to talk about the game because you were there and everybody else had to watch it on TV. But I think the solo fan experience could be fun that same way from a big game or like you're the only fan from either of these fan bases that got to be there and hear everything that was going on like that. You walk out of that place as like the most popular guy in Columbus for one night. And then everybody in Columbus is like, what was it like? What was it like? How was it? What is it like? Could you tell us about it? That, that actually makes me not want to do it because it's like I don't like people. So would I rather not sit with people or then I'd rather be bugged by everybody saying, how was it? What was it like to be the only person there? And I, I get paid for people to bug you about how, what was it like? Because if right. you guys are working, at least you're getting paid for people to ask you those questions. Uh, if I'm getting paid, you can do anything you want to me. I'll, I'll, I'll text you my innermost thoughts. Three ninety nine a month, 14-day free trial. 614-350-3315. Um, the best thing for sports writers would be if they had empty stadiums and the games weren't on TV. Boy, oh boy, would that be awesome. Yeah. I don't really mean that. Um, I think I would rather, I mean, of course, I think for a one-time thing, I'd rather have the empty stadium, the stadium to myself to see what it's like. If it was like, you can go to a hundred games, it's either a full stadium or an empty stadium. Of course you would pick a full stadium because at some point, if it's an empty stadium, I'll just watch it on my couch. What's the point? I can, I can be alone on my couch and my, my butt will feel more comfortable by the end of the game because I'm not sitting in a bleacher. Uh, three more. Question 19. From the 407, I, I sent like a nice thing to texters and said like I, I was on like a little uh, online digital journalism panel today talking about engaging your audience in between podcasts and talking about the tech subscription and how we try to, you know, keep that podcast feel even when we're not talking on the podcast. And I said, hey, I'm talking on this panel and the only reason I'm talking on it is because of, of the texters and you guys are great. And from the 407, I got... Nobody but Jim Harbaugh likes a suck-up, Doug. <laughs> which, which is why I love our texters, because that's what they text us. So from the 407, here's a goofy question. What do you like most about wearing facial coverings? This person in the 407 says, I look better. So that they, like, they think the mask, by covering up half their face, makes them look better. Steven, what do you like about wearing masks? I like two things about it. One, I talk to myself, especially when I'm out grocery shopping, and now I don't look weird when my mouth is moving because you can't see what I'm saying. Um, And that I'm talking to myself, it's not as weird. But also, I love the fact that I feel like it has enforced people to reevaluate their dental hygiene situation because you have your breath constantly blowing back into your nose. So now you know whether or not your breath stinks or not. Some people have had to learn that lesson the hard way. Wow, those are two very specific, very good answers. I'm also intrigued by the idea that you talk to yourself in the grocery store. Um, Nathan, what do you got? So I'm not a, I don't like do fashion accessories. Like I, I know I wear, I wear ties, I guess, a decent amount, but like I never really worn a watch or rings. Like right now, I don't even have a wedding ring. It still hasn't ever come in. I'm still waiting for my wedding band 
Um, I don't really care about my shoes and things that much. I've never been an accessorizing guy from a fashion standpoint, but I feel like the mask gets to be kind of like a fashion accessory you get to incorporate in. Like, so if you have multiple ones, like I had one that was specific for that I wore at my wedding and it's like really nice, like this nice blue, like Navy blue material. And uh, I lost it for a little while, but now I found it again. So now I feel like that's when I get to incorporate in with my more surgical looking masks or one that my wife had made out of some kind of other fabric. So it just becomes like a little fashion accessory. You get to mix it up. I will say before this, I never would have considered getting a face tattoo, right? When Mike Tyson got a face tattoo, everybody was like, why'd you get a face tattoo? Because it's on your face. But a mask is kind of like a face tattoo. And it does allow you to express yourself. And there's no doubt about it. It's on your face. So the mask that I wear, we got Disney masks and it's a Forky mask, Forky from Toy Story 4. And so I often get compliments on my Forky mask. And it makes me think that maybe when this is over and we're back to normal life, maybe I should get a Disney tattoo on my face because I like it. I like people to know that I like it. So I'm getting accustomed to the idea of you are gaining insight into my personality by looking at my face. You don't even have to ask me anything because what kind of 47 year old man would wear a forky mask, right? So I'm not saying I'm definitely going to get a face tattoo, but I'm much more open to it now than I was before. How many of our textures, how many of our textures do you think have face tattoos? And Sounds like another crossover. Is there a crossover with committed murder? Yeah. How many? Is there like a yeah, Venn diagram? Is it like overlap? Them. Yeah. Uh, I got a lot of polls to send out. I got to admit. From the 309, almost done. I feel like this team is going to be special. I know they lost a lot, and maybe it's my desperation to watch my Buckeyes again. But with year two Justin Fields and Ryan Day seeming like he is growing confident as a head man, this could be a year that we see something special. Plus, I saw a video with Kerry Combs the other day, and I forgot how much I missed his genuine love and enthusiasm, and I think that sparks the defense. My football question is this. If and when these Buckeyes make the playoffs against the likes of Alabama and Clemson, which position group or matchup do you feel will give them the biggest advantage? Maybe the obvious answer is Fields, but do you see a dominant offensive line making things easier for newer running backs being something that can really separate this team against high-level opponents or a fast, athletic, deep linebacker core being able to neutralize a spread attack. And then they have a second question. That's a goofy question. I think it's the offensive line. I think it's no doubt about it. It's the offensive mm-hmm. line. Of course, we all we do is talk about Justin Fields. I think that's an offensive line that can maybe control a game against a really good opponent, against a really good defensive line. And I think it'll be, I think it'll be one of the better offensive lines that Ohio State has ever taken into the postseason if they get to that point. Steven, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially since they pointed out Alabama and Clemson specifically. And you look at Clemson's offensive line, it's Jackson Carmen and a bunch of new guys. And Alabama's got a decent offensive line, but they don't have, you know, a preseason All-American and another guy who might end up winning the Remington Award, along with Aaron Mudford and some five-star guys. And it's I such think- an, an important part. I'd like that's yeah. such a primary part of the game that like that's always there. Yeah, like Najee Harris and Travis Etienne can be as great as they want to be, but if their lines are not – cooperating that day then they're not going to be effective and the same thing for the passing game so it starts there and neither of those teams necessarily have dominant defensive lines they have high level guys but they're still young so I think Ohio State has an advantage there which opens up everything else and there are sometimes when if your offensive line is just average or even good sometimes if you face a great defensive line all of a sudden you can't do any of the stuff that you plan to do 
because mm-hmm. the holes that have been there all year aren't there. The protection that's been there all year isn't there anymore. And all of a sudden your whole offensive plan is thrown off. I think when Ohio state gets in the playoff, the Buckeyes will be able to execute what Justin Fields and Ryan day want to do. Now, will it be enough to win? I don't know, but I think they'll be able to do what they want to do because of those five guys up front, Nathan. Yeah. Offensive line was my answer too. I mean, my, my runner up, I guess would be linebacker. It's just that, we're giving them so much credit for like their depth and their experience, especially their experienced depth and what it might mean if they move these guys around and those, those really click, but it's also none of those guys like really like jump out at you like dynamically. And maybe that's not fair. So maybe this, maybe these switches help bring that out of this linebacker crew and they become, um, you know, one of the better ones in the country, one of the best ones in the country. But, but offensive line is the one unit that we know, other than quarterback, that is going to be as good as anybody in the country or should be. It's not like they've got an Isaiah Simmons back there at linebacker. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Guy right. is a, a game-changing. They don't have a Chase Young, Jeff Okuda-type dude at linebacker. So I agree with what you're saying. Goofy question from the same 309 texter. Inspired by a throwback to Nathan's love of making his own ice cream, you three love to eat, but if you had to make one meal to win a million dollars, what are you making? What is your go-to? I know I can nail this meal every time dish. Maybe it's a family recipe. Maybe it's something you love, or maybe it's the only thing you know how to make. Put together the Buckeye Talk three-course meal, please, made by chefs Doug, Nathan, and Steven. Uh, again, we gave some advice earlier in this podcast. Don't gamble <laughs> on college football this year. Don't eat this meal. Don't eat this three-course Buckeye Talk meal. Nathan, you're up first. I mean, I kind of default to my wife what she thinks is my the best things that I make. And it's either this uh, – and I'm a recipe follower. I don't just, like, conjure this stuff. So it's all just based on recipes that I find. But um, a, there's a blackened tilapia recipe that I make. So we're just, like, sautéing fish in a pan. And she says it's great every time. And then also this curry chicken that I make that she's a huge fan of. So when you make curry chicken, do you, like – is the curry – like, you just buy curry? Or is there, like, some some – seasoning that you have to mix together or is it like a curry I don't package? make my own curry though that's I haven't gotten to that yet it's usually just in a jar or whatever we had a we had a family friend of hers that brought us back some spices from India that we're still going through not just curry but um, masala and turmeric and a bunch of other things it, um, some red like spicy red stuff so like um, we're still working our way through the, the supply of that but no I just use store-bought curry. Stephen what you cooking up? Yeah, I'm not the best cook in the world, but I make a great chicken parmesan. So that I can make that five times a week if that's what you want. We can eat out on the weekends. But I have a we have a family recipe pie um, that I've learned how to make over the last couple of years here. I can't tell you what's in it because it's a family recipe, but it's called a lemonade pie, and it is by far the best thing I've ever had. Nice and sweet, but a little tart there. Got a little tart, a little tart yeah. to the lemonade pie. Yeah, you sprinkle a little bit, of, and then you shave off some of another lemon, the the peel. Put it on top and sprinkle it over. It's perfect. 14-day free trial. Steven will text you the lemonade pie recipe. You I will. Tell your, tell your parents we're sorry, but we really yeah. need more texters. Um, I don't understand how people cook. I can't, I can't believe it. How do people know how to cook? This is a, a story that my wife and I tell from early in our marriage, where one day I, I was counting stuff up and I said, I said, hey, you know what? I think we know how to make seven things. And it was like, I was so impressed that between the two of us, we could make seven different things for dinner. And I don't understand how people can make like a hundred things. I literally, it boggles my mind. How did you, don't you fail so many times 
that you end up having to get pizza because you made something and it sucked or you eat something no. that's terrible? How no, I mean, you... I almost think in the modern era, I almost, my question would be, how do you not cook things? Because you've got, internet will tell you how, it'll give you the full list of ingredients and instructions for everything. You can watch them do it on YouTube videos that give you the tutorial. I mean, it doesn't take that long to watch those things and to figure those things out. It's more about having the ingredients. Once I have ingredients, I feel like I can make pretty much anything. So it's, it's more just about having your spice rack fairly well stocked and then just having a lot of like the basics that you can cook with. So like you buy, you buy chicken broth by the, at Costco. So you have several cans of it because a lot of things that involve some kind of broth and you just make sure you always have like some veggies around. It's, it's not that hard, man. I agree with that, but I can also just door dash something. So you know. Do you, do you, and we don't want to spend too much time on this. Nathan, short answer. Do you find satisfaction in cooking? A hundred percent. Yeah. Thousand, thousand percent. That's another it. part of it of like, if I could have someone else make yeah. me food as opposed to me having to make myself the food, I get zero satisfaction out of it. So that my wife has lost. Sitting there and having to wait for and watch it. I could be doing something so much more valuable with my time than watching something and making sure it doesn't burn. I don't sit there and watch it. I mean, sometimes you have to because of what it's good. But I mean, so this uh, my my wife had friends in this past weekend, and one of their activities they were going to do this weekend, they planned for it. They were going to make a lasagna from scratch. They made the pasta from scratch. They made the sauce from scratch from tomatoes we grew. They made the bechamel sauce that they used in it from scratch. They made the ricotta from scratch, like literally everything from scratch. And it was the most incredible damn thing I've eaten maybe in my. It was it was amazing. This and we've been eating it for four. We finally ate the last of it today, and I'm sad. I could have eaten a whole other pan of that lasagna today. They also have lasagna at Olive Garden, though. Exactly. Yeah, but it, this is better than anything I've ever had at Olive Garden. No the question. The popo. All right, I'm I'm terrible. No I question. Make, I make chicken and rice. I get chicken flavored rice, and I cut up a chicken breast, and I mix it together in a pot, and I make my kids eat that. <laughs> That's, we're gonna call that cooking. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I mean, I, okay. I mean, I don't. I, I, but I didn't like. I didn't, I didn't raise the chicken and cut the chicken's head off and pluck its feathers. I bought the chicken at the store and I bought. The, I don't. Did I grow? Did I have a rice patty? I don't have a rice patty in my yard. I bought chicken flavored rice at the store and I mixed it together in ten minutes. I don't know. Uncle Ben knows my name really well. I am not a person who likes to do things. Buckeye talk. All right, we're going to take one quick break and get back for the final podcast question that will be the last podcast question in the history of Buckeye talk. After this. All right, guys, it's been a good run. I've enjoyed this. I feel like we've really hit our groove. Um, we've really established, I think, Buckeye Talk as a brand. I think we've served our listeners. I think we've served our Cleveland.com readers. I think we've served our tech subscribers through this podcast. And if in asking this question, I create a black hole that sucks Buckeye Talk into it and ends this podcast, I apologize. But it's from the 559. All right, hold on. I have a knot in my stomach. It's like I'm doing a Harry Potter spell. Here we go. Would you rather have Bill Davis be your linebacker's coach or Tim Beck be your quarterback's coach? Are we still here? You have to pick one with a reason. I'm sweating. Okay. Uh, I'll start since I covered both these guys. And, but it is a fascinating question because it is, it is about both the coaches and the position group. I will say I do think Bill Davis was worse at his job than Tim Beck was at his job. I think like everybody agrees that Bill Davis was bad here. Cause you know who agrees with that? Bill Davis. <laughs> That's the, still one of my favorite stories. Bill Davis agrees. 
There are people who will tell you that all of the offensive stuff in 15 and 16 was Ed Warner's fault and Tim Beck is like a victim and that like I'm mean to him. I disagree with that because the thing is, I think the people like the quarterbacks, like Cardale Jones and, and JT Barrett still had a relation, have a relationship with Tim Beck. And I, those players in that room, I don't think Tim think that Tim Beck did a bad job and they still have a relationship with him. But just because you like your coach or like your boss doesn't mean he coached you well, which is what I would argue. I don't think he got the best out of them at a time when getting the best out of two quarterbacks who had been very successful in two very different ways and had combined to lead this program to a national championship the year before. And then they get together in 15 and neither of them are as good. And then in 16, JT's not as good as he was in 14. And now Ryan Day comes along and all of a sudden the offense looks better. That's what I don't like about Tim Beck. So Bill Davis is worse than Tim Beck though, but quarterback is substantially more important than linebacker. But we have seen bad linebacker play that cost Ohio State games. Iowa game, right? We've also seen inconsistent quarterback play and the inability to pick a quarterback ruin what should have been a back-to-back national championship season in 2015. So I can feel the black hole sucking me in. I don't know how to answer this. I'll come back and give my answer at the end. But Nathan, we'll start with you. You don't know Bill Davis and Tim Beck personally, but you do understand quarterbacks and linebackers, and you do know what I've said about them over the years. What would you say here? Not only do I not know them personally, but I wasn't covering the team, so I didn't. I don't have the impression of the job that they actually did in front of me. But in a vacuum, I say the answer is – if they're both bad, you take the bad linebackers coach because the bad linebackers coach might cost you a game like Iowa did. And I know at Ohio state, a game can be a season or it can keep you from what that season could have been, but a quarterback can, it can ruin your season. It can ruin a screwing up. The quarterback room ruins eras of college teams. I don't think that's true of just the linebacker room. So I, I think it's an easy, easy answer. You take the bad linebackers coach and you go get the best quarterbacks coach. You can Steven. I disagree. I think if my head coach is a quarterback guy, it could make up for you not having a, having a bad quarterback coach because at the end of the day, that quarterback came here to play for that head coach who also was really good at quarterback. So if let's just put it, if Corey Dennis is not that good, Kyle McCord didn't commit to Ohio State because of Corey Dennis. He comm- now he's built a relationship with Corey Dennis since then, but he committed to Ohio State because of Ryan Day. And that's going to be most quarterbacks who come in here to put – regardless of who the quarterback coach is. And I think that can help ease some of that. If your head coach is a quarterback guy, it can ease the development a little bit of a way. You can't make up for having a bad linebackers coach. And that's three different parts of being. There's three different jobs that are totally different within that linebacker room. That means you're, you're, you're screwing up three different things on a defensive end of the ball. While with the quarterback situation, the head coach still has the final say. If he's a quarterback guy, he can help that. So you want a quarterback's coach who will necessitate your head coach having to spend less time being the head coach. I think you both make good points. I think if Corey Dennis were a linebackers coach, I wouldn't be as worried as I am. So I think my answer is I'd rather have the iffy linebackers coach because quarterback is so important. I understand what you're saying, Steven, and I think you do make a good point, but I still think someone's got to coach that guy in the room because the head coach can't be in there every day. And yes, it's about having a good relationship, but in the end, it's more about bringing out the best in that guy. And the thing with Tim Beck is that I don't really knock him for a play caller. I, I think they did not call plays well, play well, plays well that year. But I do think Ed Warner deserves more of the blame for the play calling 
than Tim Beck does that year. But my main problem with Tim Beck has always been the level of play of the quarterbacks. That's it. The level of play of the quarterbacks in that room. And when I look at what Tom Herman did as a quarterback's coach who was a play caller, and then what Ryan Day did as a quarterback's coach who was a play caller, around Tim Beck, they just got much better quarterback play. Much better quarterback play than Tim Beck got out of the quarterbacks when he was here. Even though Urban was an offensive guy. Now, Urban's not, an, Urban's not a quarterback guy. He's a receiver's guy. He's never been a quarterback's coach. So I do think it's a little different now with Ryan Day being a quarterback guy. That I know what, I, I know what you're saying, Stephen, and I do think there's a lot to that. But it's just so important, and you're in there with them every day. When you're a quarterback, there's nobody you see more in the world than your quarterback's coach. It's so vital that I would rather take Bill Davis, even though I think Bill Davis was worse than Tim Beck. If you told me, if you told me right now you've got to take one of them, I'd take Bill Davis back before I'd take Tim Beck. Now, again, Tim Beck's more experienced than Corey Dennis, but I just don't like what Tim Beck did here. I'm nervous about Corey Dennis still. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. The reason I'm nervous about Corey Dennis is because of Tim Beck. Because I feel like I've seen what can happen when you have a quarterback coach who's not great, even if other things in the program are great around it. And if Corey Dennis is great, I'll come on here and say I was wrong. But that's why I'm nervous. Tim Beck is why I'm nervous. Are we alive? Am I dead? Am I dead? Uh, I think we lived through that. So How would we know? We'd be dead too. We'd be, we'd be in the same alternate universe as you. I think to be fair, honestly – it's possible that a Tim Beck, Bill Davis question would kill only me that I don't have. Maybe you guys have more. I would get a bigger viral load, of Bill Davis and Tim Beck <laughs> than you guys would. You guys would get sick, but I would, I would be gone. I mean, I, nobody has a bigger viral load of Bill Davis and Tim Beck than I do. Um, all right. That's our Wednesday podcast. We're going to do a retalkables on Friday, Ohio state, Michigan from 1968. I think we're going to do a Thursday podcast talking more position group stuff. Is that the plan? Probably whatever you want. Yeah. We're talking to Larry Johnson and some defensive linemen on tomorrow, Wednesday, the day you're all listening to this. Uh, So look for that. Look for those texts midday. um, Just some updates from them. And um, I I think that's definitely something we should, we should talk about because I think there's some interesting questions up front there. And and you guys talked to the running backs on Tuesday and we have not talked about that yet on the podcast. Correct. Correct. uh, Mm -hmm. About what Trey Sermon and Master Teague and Tony Alford had to say. So I think, I think that's good if we keep sort of dropping some of those in that podcasts that are themed around, you know, what we've learned from players and coaches during interviews. So I think we'll probably do that on Thursday. So this was the big Wednesday one, 614-350-3315 for the texts. We could use some fresh reviews on Apple Podcasts. The, the last one up is, is great. So great. Unbelievably great review. We really appreciate it, but we could use some fresh ones. And we always appreciate when you guys read cleveland.com slash OSU because we still do write at least Nathan and Steven do. Um, so thanks for all the questions. If we didn't get to you rapid fire question, we'll save them. Maybe we'll work some in Thursday. We'll work some in next week. We kind of keep a backlog. We always get more great questions that we can get to. But if we did use your question, thanks for helping uh, shape this podcast. So for Nathan Baird and Steven Means, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.